What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back, my friends. Excited to be here for another very special episode of The Midnight Myth. You know why? Why? This is episode 69. Hey. And not enough podcasts celebrate their episode 69. And I want to take a moment and reflect on the 69th episode of The Midnight Myth. It makes me think of all the great stories, you know, that we have talked about over the last 68 episodes and several bonuses and especially makes me think about the greatest story ever told, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. 69, <laughs> dudes. 69, dudes. We're not talking about Bill and Ted today, but I thought it was worth a call out. You know, and it also reminds me that from where I sit, there's not a lot of good news happening. And this has been a con- consistent theme in the uh, you know year plus that we've been doing this podcast that it seems that uh, we are ever closer to the rise of authoritarianism, racism, Nazism in our in in the land of freedom called America. It was just the Fourth of July this past week, and I wanted to kind of I don't want to say brush all of that aside because that's not true, but I wanted right. us to remind uh, to do something this week about what some things that are fundamentally good and things that bring us happiness and things that bring us joy. And we just did an episode last week on the Incredibles, the first movie. Since then we have seen the Incredibles too. And it really made me think Pixar is one of the just like purely good things happening in the world. Yeah. It's a production company that makes, uh, that makes movies for children and adults and, children of all ages, uh, that center on emotional development and emotional intelligence and that remind us what is most important in our lives, which often comes down to family, love, respect, and hope. Uh, And so I think today we want to dig into some of those themes by having a lot of fun with uh, with what Pixar has given us, with the gifts that they have given us, while also sharing our thoughts on uh, The Incredibles 2, the latest installment of this mega, mega franchise. So this is a three-part episode. Part number one, we're going to play a Pixar-themed boomerang-orang. Yeah. That's right, guys. We are going to do a game in which we are going to pull Pixar characters out of hat one, and then scenarios out of hat two and debate which character would do better in said scenarios. Yeah. Now we have agreed upon the characters, but we don't know each other's scenarios. That's part one. Part two, we're going to discuss some, you know, broader themes and theories around Pixar and what Pixar means as a cinematic universe. And then part three of the episode is we're going to give some quick thoughts on the Incredibles too. Yeah, so it's kind of a whirlwind episode tonight. We're going to have a lot of fun, 
And if you have not yet seen Incredibles 2, you're probably safe for the first two parts of the uh, of this uh, episode, uh, before which we will jump into spoilers. There is a character that's a spoiler for Incredibles 2 in the game. But we um, will warn you. Yes. Well, consider yourself warned. Yeah. Yeah. So before we start with part one, the Boomerangarang Pixar game, Laurel, if people want to reach us, they want to dialogue with us, they want to connect with us, they want to tell us how much they love us, how can they do it? Yeah, well, the conversation does not begin or end here on the podcast. The conversation is ongoing, and we want you to be a part of it. So please, uh, if you have something to add, uh, reach out to us on social media. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. And we are on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We also have a website, www.midnightmyth.com, where we publish extra content and blogs. Uh, and that's also a good place to get started if you're just getting introduced to the podcast. You can find some of our favorite episodes to jump in there. Um, and also, if you're enjoying what you hear, make sure you're heading over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher if you haven't yet, and hit subscribe and leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. So before we begin, a disclosure. Laurel is the Pixar-arian of us. A uh, Pixar-arian, yes. yes. That's uh, how uh, I identify, yes. She has seen all of the Pixars for yeah, the most part. Yeah, most of them. I am not as knowledgeable or as savvy in Pixar as Laurel. So I just want to say a disclaimer before we begin the game. When I defeat Laurel in the game, wow. what a marketed disadvantage I had from the beginning. Oh my gosh. Well, we will have to hear from our our, our faithful listeners uh, who will come to my uh, come to my defense at the end of this. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's see how this plays out, shall oh, we? Oh, we already know I will win. Oh, but, sure. So from one hat we have the characters. The other hat, we have the scenarios. Mm -hmm. Let us draw our characters from the character hat now, and then we will read our characters aloud. So, Laura, why don't you tell us what character you have? Okay, this is a spoiler for Incredibles 2. I have the Screenslaver. Oh, okay. So, I have Merida from Brave. Wow. Okay, this is great. Let's see what this scenario is. Do you want to pull it out? Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. Ladies first. You wow. go ahead. Pick okay. the scenario in which I mean, Merida... you are the one who's... You are playing a lady, but so am I. Yeah, but you are a lady, and I'm, I am not. Okay, this is one I put in. <laughs> this is great. Okay, so uh, the Screenslaver versus Merida at starting a successful Etsy shop selling handmade gifts and jewelry. Oh, wow. This is amazing. Go ahead. This is great. So I'm going to start. Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen Incredibles 2, go ahead and skip ahead a few minutes, but this will be a, a spoiler. I am arguing for the Screenslaver, a.k.a. Evelyn Dever. This is a character who is pretty amazing in, uh, in Incredibles 2, and she is definitely the major villain, and she's a super villain who's interested in showing people what the real world looks like outside of... Uh, just the simulations that we take in on screens. And she's pretty dastardly and pretty uh, pretty devilish in her, uh, in her methods. But she's also an inventor. She's a STEM. She is a woman character who has taken power uh, and who has realized what her true talents are and is super charismatic about it and is like really amazing at coming up with what people need and what people want and satisfying those needs. So when we talk about somebody who's going to have a successful Etsy shop, um, Derek is making the funniest faces at me right now. Uh, what you go to Etsy for, which is of course a, uh, a website where people can all over the world have their own e-commerce shops where they sell things that they make themselves or that are vintage. You want something unique. You want something you can't find anywhere else. And I really can't think of anybody who would be better for this than uh, a really popular, powerful inventor in like 50s, 60s area, era, which is all like, it's antique now, it's coming back, it's vintage, it's like totally hip, but she's also going to come up with really interesting uh, technological advances to the, the jewelry or the gifts that she is selling. So be able to give, you know, your, your boyfriend or your mom something really unique something antique that is also useful and functional. So your argument is the screen slaver is good at making technology that enslaves minds. Hence she'd be good at Epsi. I get it. I mean, she's literally That's, an inventor. Yes. She's inventing technology to enslave minds. 
to take over the yeah. world. Yeah, um, you know, she'd sell you some really, really great glasses. So You can't of, find them anywhere else. Yes, because they are designed to brainwash people and to make them living slaves. Yeah. So your, your character is an evil villain. My character is a delightful young woman who is plucky, intelligent, gritty, and rustic. All things, <laughs> all things that are successful uh, benchmarks in a Etsy brand. Unfortunately, rustic is very successful. She is also someone that will not take no for an answer. She is someone that will strive for what she wants. She is the medieval version of a empowered businesswoman. Wow. And because of this, because that she won't take the, the, the conventional, no, I'm sorry, you can't do blank. No, I'm sorry, you can't do blank. No, I'm sorry, you can't you know, become an archer. You can't choose who you're going to marry. You can't run a successful Etsy store. She will go out and create the best Etsy store. She already knows all about making cute little bears. She learned that from the witch. Did she ever actually make one, though? No, but she saw it, and that's all she needs. Has she ever demonstrated that she's good with her hands in any way other than violence and destruction? I didn't interrupt you. I'm just I'm pointing, sorry. I'm just pointing I, that out I, there. I'm so sorry. I let I you make you your done. point out. I thought you were done. I'm no, sorry. no worries. My point is that when it comes to connecting people to a unique item, an item that they're going to want, an item that they can only find there, there's only one person that can do it. It's not the person that creates mass produce hypnotic technology to try to take over the world. The person would be the worst Etsy owner because every single piece of thing, a uh, little thing that they buy would turn on them and turn them into slaves. Merida would be the only one that can create empowering, unique and delightful items on Etsy. And I rest my case. I think that is a really good argument. I don't necessarily think that Merida has demonstrated any actual skill with craftsmanship. My point is, is that if she set her mind to it, she yeah. could do it. No, I, I, I get that. Um, what I will say is, you know, how we determine success on an Etsy store is probably how many sales they get and how, uh, how many good reviews and how good the average review is. And if her technology, if Evelyn's technology is enslaving people to <laughs> is enslaving people by their screens, she can probably get them to uh, oh, leave yes. her five-star reviews all over the place. So yes, your argument is for slave technology. But and I also you're have arguing one, pro-slavery. Have, no, I'm not arguing pro-slavery. You're you're putting words in my mouth. Um, but what I will also say is uh Etsy also lives and dies by ship times and by communication with the seller. So if you're ordering from somebody on Etsy, you want to get your package in a timely manner. And if it's not going to reach you on time or if it arrives broken, you want to be able to contact that person to say, hey, I need some help and I need you to resolve this No one's more responsible than supervillains at that. Well, people who actually have email are more responsive than people who live you can't, in the 14th you can't, no, no, century. No, 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 you can't, you can't make that knock against Merida. Okay, fine. She, we don't know her skills in email because she's never had them. Okay. The point is, in that scenario, I who would know. do better? All right, well, well. What do you guys want? What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Do you want evil uh, screen slaver or delightful Merida? We're just talking about success here. So let's pull our next characters. I have... Hector from Coco. I have Woody. Oh, okay. So I will pick the scenario this time. There is a snake in my boot. So my scenario that I'm picking is singing a heartwarming song that advances a court character God objective damn it. while teaching a me? universal moral truth. That's not cool. <laughs> yes, that baby. That is not cool. <laughs> so my character's entire premise is to do this exact scenario. Yep. <laughs> you had to read it to make sure that that was actually what was on that. No, I, I not to make sure what's on it. I'm just looking for anything that I can latch onto for Woody when you're done. I don't Go know ahead. if I even really need to argue. So Hector wrote Remember Me. Yeah. Remember Me is a song uh, that he wrote for his daughter before going to perform a show with his bandmate Dela Cruz. Dela Cruz. Dela Cruz. Dela Cruz. Yeah. Dela Cruz. Dela Cruz ends up murdering Hector um, in order to steal his songs because yeah. Hector decides the life of a musician 
separates him from his daughter, which he cannot, you know, stomach. Dela Cruz then takes this song and becomes an international, or I don't know if international, but becomes the biggest yeah. a person in this, you know, hypothetical. I, I think it's set in Mexico. I don't it's know Mexico, if they actually yeah. say that. Okay. So in Mexico. Hector wrote this song for his daughter, Remember Me. And in the end, in the story of Coco, when Miguel mm. is at his worst, when Miguel is being separated from music by a, a multiple generations of music being the thing that destroyed their family. When Hector's soul is ready to vanish and disappear because no one remembers him, he goes to his great grandmother and Miguel sings Hector's song, which not only saves Miguel's soul, it saves Coco's soul and it saves Hector's soul. Teaching the universal truth that Remembering those we love is an important thing, an action good of its own merits and by its own merits with no other reward. And it advances the character Hector who needs to reconcile the fact that he died young and was separated from his family. He is the reason this entire scenario exists. Yeah, so um, so Derek, you really got the luck of the draw on this one. I really did. Um, it's kind of ridiculous that you were able to pull that out, and I suspect foul play. But um, <laughs> uh, are you accusing me of shenanigans? I am accusing you of shenanigans. <laughs> There's a Hang shenanigans on. charge there, on the court. <laughs> there is a shenanigans hat as well. The the game mechanics change at this point. Um, we should have a shenanigans. We actually mechanic. should have a shenanigans anyway, next continue. time. Um, okay, so yes, obviously you've got the luck of the draw, and Hector is is pitch perfect, uh, all puns intended, for this particular scenario. I will argue that I don't think that Woody would be bad at this. I think that it's um, awesome. This is a fantastic opportunity for Woody. While he may not be cut out for this at the beginning of his journey. Uh, I think by the end of his journey, at least even in the first Toy Story movie, he is absolutely ready to do this. And not just because he is played by America's dad, Tom Hanks, who we would all love to hear us hear sing us a lullaby. Um, but Woody is a character who goes through uh, in, intense trials and has to overcome his own ego and his own grandiosity to become a better friend, to become a better leader, and to become... Uh, a better companion to Andy. Um, so while he may not have the musical skills that Hector has, he has the emotional journey uh, that we get to witness more than we do Hector's uh, because Coco is really Miguel's story. And while we kind of get Hector's, uh, Hector's perspective uh, secondhand, in Toy Story, it's all about Woody coming to realize those uh, objective moral truths and those those character things that are so important. And so I think his song would ring really, really true to us when he sings about, you know, how to overcome uh, those things that stand in your way of being a, a better part of the community. Remember me. Um, yes, the end. Yeah, that wasn't fair. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. Let's get our next character. There we go. I think I'm willing to say that you made a great argument for Woody. Thank you. I had the easy argument. You had the difficult argument. I think you made it amazingly and perfectly. Judging by your face, I can tell you're not happy with who you drew. Oh, no, I'm very happy oh, with who I drew. Oh, who'd you draw? Mr. Incredible. I have syndrome. Oh, my I God. I swear, this it is, is a not smackdown. It is a... It is a smackdown. I think it's my turn. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. I just, you know, I like to pull things from hats. <laughs> All right. So what's the this scenario? This is ridiculous. You're fired from the podcast. <laughs> the scenario is killing, killing absolutely everyone. Everyone. <laughs> Underlined yes. with an exclamation point. Yes, this yes, is yes. ridiculous. Go ahead. Okay. How would Mr. Incredible do at killing everyone? Okay. Listen absolutely to me. Listen to me. Everyone. Listen to me. All right. So Mr. Incredible is <laughs> fundamentally <Sorry>. good. <laughs> a good man who sometimes loses his way and does things that are morally ambiguous, but they're never that bad, right? He would never kill someone. But if he had to... If he was, say, 
enslaved by a pair of glasses or he was, you know, being forced to do so in order to save his family. It gets into a whole like moral quandary here. Mr. Incredible is a superhero who is strong like Bull. He is the most powerful man in the universe. And if if it were his directive and he somehow could not fight back morally, Mr. Incredible could wipe out the entire planet. He's just that strong. Uh, and we've seen everything that he tries to do that is good often ends up with a whole lot of collateral damage because his power is so uh, unimaginable. And so even though Buddy Syndrome Incrediboy is primed for this because that's what he loves to do, he doesn't have superpowers. Without his technology, he couldn't do anything. He's not even the one who really kills the superheroes in, uh, in The Incredibles. It's the AI dro- droid or the AI drone. So I have to say, if it was his directive, Mr. Incredible could absolutely get it done. There have been many strong men in the world, plenty of them. Strong men have, one might say, ran most of the world. But when it comes to pure destruction for destruction's sake, it takes an amoralness. It takes a callousness. It takes a savagery beyond just raw physical strength because physical strength is not enough to kill everyone you would need to target the nuclear bombs in precise locations you thought about this too much you would need to plant biological weapons in the right area to maximize their effect it is not just in strength what is it that's required to kill absolutely everyone intelligence smarts, the understanding and the deep workings of the technological and psychological fears of all. And no one is better than that in this scenario than Syndrome. Syndrome, in The Incredibles, his goal is to make money off of people, not destroy them. And in the process of doing that, he destroys every superhero except for the Incredibles. If his goal were to just kill everyone, absolutely everyone, he would be able to infiltrate every level of society and like Palpatine, execute Order 66, mass annihilate on multiple layers, on the biological, the technological, the like, you know, nuclear, whatever layer it is, he would make sure that at the end Everyone was dead. Mr. Incredible could bash through some windows. You're right. This directive switched from protect to kill. There'd be a bloody bill to pay. It would be huge. It would be epic. It would be incredible. But it would not be apocalypse. You um, you planned all of this. No, I and, didn't. And <laughs> I didn't at all. <laughs> you're, you're gaslighting me into thinking you didn't. Uh, this isn't fair. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't at all. This is all random. Okay. All right. I mean, all right. we, we get to control the characters in the scenario. That's so, true. you know, That's you, true. I definitely think of, Hey, what would I like to draw? And I got two that yeah. I liked to, like I thought would go together. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, when I wrote the kill everyone, I was hoping there'd be two really morally good, really characters, good characters, like Woody versus Mr. Incredible. I Aww. thought would be funnier. Yeah. You know? Anyway, that, let, was, uh, that was dark. Let us pick our next ones. And uh, for those of you at home, I was giving my Mr. Burns fingers the whole yeah, time. Yeah, the whole time. The it was, whole time. It was very diabolical. So I have... Who do you have? Wally. Oh, I've got Buzz Lightyear. Oh, wow. Really What's good? the scenario? Cleaning me, up trash? Let me, let me pick the scenario okay. here. The scenario is... Fixing the HVAC in my office during a heat wave. Okay, okay, guys, this, just for some context, I haven't had air conditioning in my office for a week, and it is in the upper 90s here in Philadelphia. And as you know, it is the worst possible thing to have to, like, come up with a fix for air conditioning for a 140,000-square-foot building in the middle of a heat wave because you just can't get the heat on. So it's a big challenge. Even though it sounds like the most mundane scenario of all, it is a big, big challenge, and I feel very good about my draw. 
Yeah. Um, do you want to go first then? Uh, yeah. So go, um, go for it. So Wally is a great character, right? Wally is uh, the title character of the movie Wally. And when that movie opens, we find him on a desolate planet that is covered in garbage, and he is organizing and trying to uh, clean up the garbage in anticipation of the human's return to Earth. He also goes to bed at night by watching Hello, Dolly on his little TV, and he's just a dear, darling little man. Um, Wally is perfect for this scenario of fixing the HVAC in my building because he doesn't feel the heat, for one, so this is a character who has incredible endurance uh, in taking on this task because one of the hardest things about uh, having to having to fix any sort of system is the elements. It's like if you have to be on the roof in 95-degree weather installing new HVAC units, it's going to be uh, really tough on you and you might pass out from heat stroke. Uh, but Wally's not going to pass out from heat stroke, and he's also a machine who can be programmed to... Uh, do such tasks, and he has superior lifting capabilities uh, and can get around really fast, so he's obviously you know the right robot for the job. But most importantly, we have Wally's love of humanity at the heart of this. So it's all well and good if you can fix an HVAC, but unless you're getting paid exorbitant amounts of money, uh, you have to really want to fix that HVAC. And Wally would look at me um, sweating and feeling sad and maybe crying and maybe singing a little bit of Hello, Dolly, because uh, I do love musical theater. And he'd be like, I have to, I have to help her. Wally. And he would, uh, he would get it done for me. I think that is a as close to perfect argument in a boomerangerang as I have ever heard. Aww, I thought that was beautiful. Um, clearly when it comes to fixing the HVAC, <laughs> Wally is the better suited character than Buzz Lightyear in every way, except this. Uh oh. Buzz Lightyear won't accept a broken HVAC. Buzz Lightyear will take everyone in the office and he will look at them and he will say, our job doesn't require HVAC. It requires gumption, exploration. And he will build a spaceship and be like, we will all go into space and fight the space inventors to infinity and beyond and leave the HVAC in the dust. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. Here's uh here's my only counter to, yeah, you don't to the counter. argument you didn't make. You don't, I just want to say it. I just quickly want to say it. <laughs> you win. <laughs> Wally has been on the earth uh surviving and making this happen for decades and uh and so we know he could get up on the roof and withstand hot temperatures. So but, so are are you pouring lemon juice in the wound right now? No, I just wanted to say this I just last I gave you the argument. I know, I just wanted to say this last thing. Um what is Bud Light, Buzz Lightyear powered by? Batteries. Batteries, which expand and explode and leak battery acid in so the sun. So you had to counter an argument I didn't make. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say one more thing. Okay. Wow. Okay. Is this the last one? I don't know how we're off, but yes, this is the oh, last wow. one. Yeah, this is the last one. And I'm going to grab this other one. Okay. That's in here. All right. I got the witch from Brave. I have Dante the dog from, from Coco. Coco. Pick All right. the scenario. Or do you want it? No, I'll get it. No, you, you go for it. Which one? Which one? Which one? All right. Um, let's do this one. Winning the Tri-Wizard Tournament. Uh, and if you are not familiar with what that is, that is from the Goblet of Fire, the fourth Harry Potter installment. Tri-Wizard Tournament pits three and or four wizards against each other in three tasks where they have to face dragons, people, and a magical maze. On the onset, my odds don't look very good. They don't look great. Considering you have a witch and I have a dog. Yes. But uh, I'm willing to fight this one. Okay. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Uh, I'll go first here. All right, go for um, it. So 
you might not think much of Dante when you first meet him. It's true. His, I don't. His tongue is out. He doesn't seem particularly intelligent. He appears to be a street dog. He reminds me of Ed, the hyena from The Lion King. Yes, I, I, I understand that. Yeah. You know, I, I get where that's coming from. Seems like a silly and less intelligent creature. And what I'd like to say to everyone here is to understand the fundamental moral and epistemological truth that looks are deceiving. Because Dante looks silly. Dante looks stupid. Dante looks completely useless. But Dante is, in fact, a spirit guide. His job is to direct a soul into the afterlife so that soul can actualize itself into full form in the afterlife. That's pretty amazing. That is um, an unbelievable and special and unique thing to be. And to do so properly, he has to exist both in the spirit and the physical world simultaneously, something that we see Dante do. So while Dante may not have the flashy spells, Dante may not have the flashy looks, Dante may not sound very smart when Dante does his Dante things. When it comes to actually navigating from point A to point B to point C of a quest, is there anything better than the faithful, loyal companion of a spirit dog? Isn't that the most perfect thing we want to complete a quest? And I would say, submit here that Dante would win the Triwizard Tournament. He wouldn't want it for himself. He would want to give this to another because Dante is selfless. There is no me with Dante. It is about the journey. And that is exactly the mentality that we need because in the Triwizard Tournament, Harry, though, wins. He does not get the glory. He does not even keep the riches. He gives them to the Weasleys so that... uh, They can start a business of their own. But he gets scorn and scrutiny for claiming that Voldemort is alive. I think there is no better character in this scenario that imbibes the spirit of what the the Goblet of Fire as a book means than Dante the Spirit Dog. That was an amazing argument. I'm really, really proud of you for pulling that out with Dante, the the tongue-hanging-out spirit dog. I appreciate that. (laughs) He looks like a a sausage that (laughs) fell on the floor in a (laughs) barbershop. And Um, he does. Great character. Great character of Dante. Um, Yeah, there's not much that has to be said about the witch um, and her foray into the Triwizard Tournament. Obviously, she can summon magic. Um, the most notable of which is the Will of the Wisps, who uh, kind of circle her her abode, um, which would be a really interesting ally on her journey because most of the tasks in the Triwizard Tournament require facing down another species, like a dragon or a mer person or whatever blast-ended scroots or dementors are haunting the maze. And so um, through the magic that she has to turn her crow into a talking crow and to bring inanimate objects to life, she might be able to communicate with those tasks uh, and find a better resolution than violence. Uh, and then if all else fails, she knows how to use doors to get into you know, other dimensions and other locations. So I think she has a, a market advantage uh, against all of the tasks themselves um, in terms of having both a way to uh, navigate the task and a way to escape the task. Um, but does that mean she wins? Does she have the does she have the internal drives that a Dante would have? I don't know. So that's why I think that your argument is so fascinating because it's not so much about what skills you have at the beginning. It's about how much you want it. And Dante wants to be a spirit guide more than anything, and he becomes a spirit guide by the end of that movie. So um, I think it's a very interesting argument. The whole time? That's a question. That's a good question. But yes, power for power, the witch wins. Yeah, easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Dante doesn't have any powers. (laughs) Dante has no powers. Um, But yeah, you made a great argument for that. 
I thought well, it was great. That concludes the boomerang orang. I expect to see and hear the tweets and the emails saying, Derek, you were so amazing. I can't believe you won so easily. We are mm-hmm. so proud of you, Derek. And if you think that I won, you can just write any tweet and and follow it up with hashtag I hear Laurel. Oh, look, I hear Laurel is trending. Uh, it must mean I won ages ago. So let's move into the next phase. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Pixar here. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what Pixar means as a studio. We mentioned it briefly Uh, One of the things that I found very interesting researching this podcast was the Pixar grand theory, if you will. Yeah. This idea that all Pixar movies take place in a continuous universe and timeline. Yeah. This is something that you may have seen bouncing around the internet. It's been around for a few years, uh, created by a guy named John Negroni. And if you want an in-depth uh, kind of exploration of what it is, go to pixartheory.com. He lays it out in uh, just incredible detail there. But essentially the core of the Pixar theory says what you said, Derek, that uh, all Pixar movies are taking place within one uh, universe uh, and on one grand timeline. So it begins with uh, with Brave or in the more recent uh sort of canonical structures with The Good Dinosaur, which came out, I think, last year, uh, and then ends with the Monsters, Inc. franchise. And it tracks the rise and fall of uh, different civilizations on Earth, essentially. Uh, So we have the dinosaurs who rise and fall, man who rise and fall, uh, machines and animals who take over and run the Earth for some period of time and then, uh, you know, collapse again. And then finally, monsters who become the dominant race on the earth and have to travel back in time to mine human energy through the screams and or laughs of children. Uh, And then that time travel gets us to the witch from Brave, who is actually Boo from Monsters, Inc., trying to find Sully through the doors that she can traverse through uh, dimensions and time. So it's a, an incredible theory, and I definitely recommend going in and looking at the ins and outs of it. But I think what's most important is that it comes down to a few uh, really powerful themes that Pixar loves to come back to and a few patterns of storytelling that it loves to come back to. Yeah, one of the things I thought very striking about this idea of a Pixar uni- like unified universe Um, unified universe, that's a weird term, (laughs) a Pixar linked um, timeline. Um, One, I don't agree with it. I'm just going to flat out there and say, I think it's wrong. I don't think Pixar sat to create an entire, you know, universe that started from one time to another. I think it's only looking backward that we're able to make these associations and connections. But the reason I think those associations and connections exist and why it's fun to think of the Pixar cinematic universe, and I do think it's fun and there's nothing wrong with it, is that uh, it takes me back to when I read the Walter Isaacson biography on Steve Jobs. And that one of the things that Steve Jobs, the one of the founders of Apple's, believed, Apple's, Apple believed, was every object in the universe has a soul. There is not a single thing or aspect that doesn't have some element of magic to it. It's one of the driving principles behind Apple's technology, why Steve Jobs was obsessed with things like design, why an Apple computer had to be beautiful for beautiful sake. Yes, for beauty's sake, because it once it was created, it had a soul. That soul needed to express itself. And he found a connection in Pixar, and for a time... Steve Jobs was the CEO of Pixar in the animators who believed in the personification, the solification of inanimate objects and why movies like Toy Story exist. So one of the reasons I think there is a moral thread, a fabric of connection thematically through all elements of Pixar is because it talks about the importance and the morality of everything the beauty in the mundane. Yeah. That a toy is not just a toy. It is a living, breathing thing. A car is not a car. 
a monster isn't what you would think or expect it to be. And those things gain their value and gain their significance through the significance that we humans give them. Uh, so especially a toy, right? Think about your teddy bear or like the, the toy that you carried around for years when you were a kid until it was torn up and ratty and dirty and your parents had to throw it away. Like that thing only has uh, the significance that you remember because you gave that to it, because you played with it, because you named it. Uh, there is a, a through line of so many Pixar movies of how, uh, how external love, how external valuation creates internal value in these characters and in these objects, especially with Toy Story. But often you'll even see that within these sort of family narratives like Coco and The Incredibles, that that exchange of love is extremely valuable to every character and that every emotion is valuable. And that there is a kernel of moral truth that exists in all things. Yes. And it exists by value by itself. So a song like Remember Me, we mentioned Coco, a song like Remember Me can, yes, charm millions of people make profit for an immoral person, but still inspire others to make music. And it can also help continue the life of a forgotten father in the afterworld. You know, so that the thing has meaning because that there is just inherent meaning in everything. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. So I think that, that the idea that there is this thematic connection fuels the idea that it's one universe. And then, because it's animation and the animators, they all work on relatively the same movies. They put Easter eggs. We look back and we say, hey, look at all of these connections. And maybe one day it'll come out that Pixar does have this grand unified theory. But I think it's more spontaneous. Right. You know, my, my theory is that Pixar has an idea of what it thinks makes a great movie. And that idea permeates what it does. And the artistic ch choices and styles, they meld and they blend throughout all of their films. Absolutely. They come back to, you know, themes and stories that they want to tell to uh, young people especially, but to anyone who's bringing their kids to the movies and any one of us who has grown up on Pixar movies and wants to go back and experience being a kid again. Um, and yeah, you're right. They are all kind of working in the same studios and hanging out and, uh, you know, admiring and emulating each other's work. And so there's going to be a, a pizza planet truck in every single movie as a nod or an homage to toy story, which kicked the whole thing off or, you know, just as a nod to each other as fellow artists, there is going to be a reference to by and large. Anytime you get an opportunity to show off something that was manufactured or a store um, and bringing those things back is another way to hat tip to each other and say, you created something beautiful and something of value. And so I want to give you your recognition. So whether or not you buy in 100% to the Pixar theory um, doesn't necessarily matter. There is, however, uh, an underlying tapestry, I think, of ideas that work together and intertwine together because at the very least you have a production company that has an underlying philosophy. Yeah. And while I doubt that the Pixar cinematic universe theory is objectively true in the respect that they sat down and they charted a universe the way that Marvel does. Right. You know, we know that Marvel has a universe and they have phases that they want to so release the many universe, right? So many spreadsheets. I don't think that, Pixar has that in the same way or the same vein, but the Pixar cinematic universe is subjectively true. Yeah. And that the fact that so many people love these movies and see the common threads that it produces a theory of, of a shared universe to me is just a net win for all of us that love great storytelling and love the idea that storytelling can produce inspiration and magic. So I love the Pixar cinematic universe theory Though I don't think it's objectively true, it is subjectively true. That's a great way to put it. That's absolutely a great way to put it. And um, which brings us, I think, to our their latest installment that we just saw. Yeah. The Incredibles 2. 
and uh, just want to like spend the, the the tail end of this episode talking about it. I've only seen it once, which is a unique thing. We usually don't like talking about a piece of art unless we've seen it many times, because often our first impressions can lead us astray. Um, you know, we might we might think or feel or be in a mindset that doesn't lead us to a more uh, you know, critical analysis. That and being said, I loved Incredibles too. I did too. Um, yeah, stories are living things. And so our experience of every story is going to be different every time we take it in based on what mindset we're in and what stones are left unturned by a first watch. So you're exactly right. We usually like to see it a couple of times. But um we were interested in in examining this after talking so in depth about the original Incredibles, and we wanted to see what kind of path was paved forward by this next uh, sequel. And I loved it too. I thought it was great, um, and it it got into some of the same uh, same kind of questions that the Incredibles asked, and then it asked new questions, which really excited me because if you're going to wait 14 years for a sequel, uh, you don't want just the same thing. You want it to bring you to a a brand new place while reminding you what was great about the original. And I think that uh, The Incredibles 2 absolutely achieved that uh, and exceeded those expectations. I thought it was really good. So one aspect I'd like to drill in specifically, if you will. Yeah. There's a scene in which Elastigirl, who has emerged as the central hero of the second movie, the main story follows her. I guess there's a lot of time with Mr. Incredible and Jack-Jack, but I would argue that Elastigirl is the hero of this movie. There's an interesting scene in which Elastigirl is sitting next to Evelyn, a.k.a. the screen slaver. slaver. But Elastigirl doesn't know this. And Evelyn is, is telling her, hey, how's it feel to be in this moment? The moment where you finally have the stage. And I feel like uh, the screenslaver is like really trying to be like, tell me what it's like to bask in the glory. And in that, an interesting conversation emerges between the two in which they describe the difference in running the company from the perspective of um, uh, Evelyn's brother. I forget his name. Evelyn's brother, who's the front man of the company. He's the Steve Jobs. He's the salesman. Yeah. And versus her, who does the inventions and she does all of the tech. And then what Elastigirl responds with is like, are you asking the cynical me or the, I forget what she says. Is it the cynical me or the idealistic me? Yeah, it's something like that. But she says specifically the first and she says the cynical her gives an answer that's like, by the way, your whole company's fucked. Your brother's an idiot. None of this means anything and it won't go anywhere. And then she says the idealistic version of her, which is not the word, is that like, hey, you can do whatever you want. Don't let anyone stand in your way. Least of all, don't let the patriarchy hold you down. Yeah. And my question for you, Laurel, which Elastigirl there is the real Elastigirl? Because I feel like that's the moral tug and pull for, you know, pardon the pun with Elastigirl of the movie. (laughs) Because the movie ends with, the screenslaver going to jail in which she goes to jail and then Violet goes, yeah, but isn't she rich? She like, she's not actually going to go to real jail. Right. And there's this tug and pull between justice and cynicism that this movie represents. And we see the hero of the movie, the one like who is most responsible, like the protagonist and the antagonist meet. And that is screenslaver and Elastigirl. Do they have an opposing philosophy that is overcome in this movie? Because if they don't, has the screen slavers argument won? Well, this is, I think, a great question because I've I've been thinking about some of the same things with this movie. Um, For one, I thought it was amazing to see um, an almost Bechdel test passing Uh, two scenes between Evelyn and Helen. Um, So regardless of the fact that I could pretty much see from a mile away that Evelyn was going to be the big baddie, um, it was awesome to see two powerful women, powerful in different ways, discussing 
the trials and tribulations of being powerful. I thought that was really, really cool to see. And this movie explores gender in an interesting way um, by reversing uh, traditional gender roles between Bob and Helen uh, in a way that the first movie didn't quite do. So Helen gets to be the one to leave the house and have the, the big flashy job and ride the sexy bike and um, do the uh, out in the open things while Bob has to stay home and take care of the kids and do the traditionally wifely duties of homekeeping and um, helping with homework and babysitting and whatnot. Um, so to get to your question, which is do they have an opposing philosophy, I don't know. Um, I kind of tend to think that a lot of the um, a lot of the idealistic points that this movie makes are immediately undercut, and that is uh, is done very intentionally to serve us an incredible movie about doing the right thing that is also critiquing the idea of being able to do the right thing. Um, so I think what I'm saying here is that Helen gets to have the freedom for a moment of reversing gender roles and being a more fully realized version of herself, more fully realized woman, and then at the end gets sort of the taste, the temptation of being able to have that be her life and then recognizes that that's not the way of the world and that she's going to have to go back into, you know, being mom. Um, and so I don't know that the movie is necessarily saying that that is bad, that that is wrong for Helen, but that has been a huge part of us uncovering her character is uncovering her relationship to being a stay-at-home mom rather than being Elastigirl. And so I, I really do think that, that her story is undercut pretty heavily in this, almost like a Shakespeare play. Um, yeah. Yeah, and when Evelyn is being arrested and put into the police car at the end, she goes, just because you stopped me doesn't make you right. Right. And or, or just because you stopped me doesn't make me wrong. I forget what it is, but just saying, just because you had this victory in the pragmatic, in the battle, you won the battle, doesn't mean you won the intellectual argument. Right. And that maybe there is a broader intellectual argument that the screen slaver was making that wasn't answered in this movie. And in that way, The Incredibles 2 lives in a moral ambiguity that for the quote-unquote superhero genre, I've only ever seen by Christopher Nolan in the first two Batman movies. Yeah. And even then, like, there are clear opposing moral arguments between Batman and his villains. It just wasn't clear who was who won those at the end. Yeah. In this one, it's not clear to me if there was a morally opposing argument and it just turned into heroes go into hero role, villains go into villain role. Exactly. The heroes catch the villains because that was their role. But was anything solved? Right, right, exactly. Um, and the Incredibles win because they are backed up by institutions and social norms, not because they are necessarily backed up by a better philosophy. Obviously, their methods don't involve like harming people or an intent to harm people, so they get a check mark in that category. But primarily, they are backed up by uh, what is socially acceptable and what is enforced by uh, law enforcement and government. So I want to ask this, and, and my memory of the movie, only seen once, could be flawed here. The screen slaver only harms one person, at, like objectively. Pizza delivery guy goes yeah. to jail for a crime he didn't commit. Right. That sucks, right? But, and that's legitimate harm. Is there anyone else she actually harms? Well, she is hijacking the, um, the boat at the end with the signing with, I think the intent to harm people, right? Yeah, I guess her, well, so her, her intent is to, is certainly to undermine superhero-ness. Yeah. But what, what I'm saying is that she's unique in that she doesn't kill people. Right. No one dies. Right. She's not a villain in the, in, in cut under the cloth of like a, a Magneto who is like, has a moral point, but like will do anything to get his objectives. 
not a villain in the vein of like a Lex Luthor, who's just a mad genius out for power and death, you know, and destruction. She's not a villain in like Thanos who wants to just murder half the universe. Right. Right. Like she's just trying to stop a law. Yeah. No. And I, I think she's an incredibly interesting villain and, and I, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, but she does send the minions out to kill the kids. Uh, to, to kidnap them. To, okay. Yeah. To kidnap them. Oh, well, and obviously I'm not trying to say that she's right. 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 You know, or, or right. What I'm saying is that there's a grayness yeah. in this movie that did not exist in the first Incredibles. Absolutely. Syndrome is obviously a dick. Mr. Incredible may have inadvertently created him. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't his intention, you know, but, and superheroes may inadvertently create their villains, but Syndrome is clearly a dick. Right. Evelyn has a really interesting perspective and argument. And then, yes, she sucks because she is a villain. But beyond that, that's the only reason she sucks. Yeah, I agree. And she has an incredibly compelling philosophical argument. Right. So when she gives the under the screen slaver mask before we know that it's her, she gives the monologue um, to a, a captive audience, literally captive audience, while Elastigirl is trying to trace the signal. Um, she says some really telling things that lay out her philosophy, that we are literally slaves to our screens and that we live in simulation. So we don't talk to each other, we have talk shows. We don't play games, we have game shows. Uh, and it talks about how we live our lives through a screen of simulation. And this point-for-point echoes uh, the thoughts of the famous French sociologist and philosopher Jean Baudrillard, who has an exact quote that blows my mind how similar it is to what this green slaver says. He says, People no longer look at each other, but there are institutes for that. They no longer touch each other, but there is contactotherapy. They no longer walk, but they go jogging, etc., Everywhere, one recycles lost faculties or lost bodies or lost sociality or the lost taste for food. So here he's saying that every experience that we have is just a simulation or a uh, replica, a facsimile of the original experience. Uh, So even the eating of food, uh, if we look at today, is more about the Instagramming of your food than the actual taste of it. Um, so it's a really interesting point that the screen slaver is bringing up that critiques us sitting in here watching a superhero movie instead of having a real experience. And that's pretty fascinating for a movie to do that. Yes. Instead of me actually trying to do and be and strive for something heroic, I am content watching Elastigirl, Mr. Incredible do that for me. I also think, I think that's amazing I would also say that when I see Elastigirl talk about both the cynicism versus her idealism, I think of Elastigirl as the most bendable. Oh, yeah. She's flexible. So she's the one capable of seeing this moral grayness that the other characters really can't, including Mr. Incredible. Mr. Incredible only sees things through the one lens. I'm a hero. There are villains. I punch them, right? Yeah. Everything's good. Elastigirl sees the more complexity because she is more both intellectually and literally flexible. And I think what it comes down to is that if I have the choice to view the world through the lens of both cynicism or idealism, if I have that power, and maybe I don't, maybe there is no choice and it's illusion to to think that I can, but if I have that choice, why would you choose cynicism? Yeah, choose aspiration. What is the value to choosing to be cynical if you could choose. I think Elastigirl's choice represents saying, hey, it may be meaningless that I'm a hero. I may do more harm than good. I may do no good at all, but I'm going to make a choice to try to do as much good as I can, knowing that that might, might be the wrong choice, it might be the right choice, but at least I've chosen. Versus um, Screenslaver, whose entire modus operandi is to rob people of choice, to force them into a narrative rather than giving them any autonomy. And maybe in that way, they have an opposing philosophy. Wow, I love that. Um, and it, 
it just set off a thing in my mind. It reminds me, you know, in saying that Elastigirl has this choice and she chooses aspiration over uh, cynicism. It just reminds me a little bit of The Last Jedi and the the philosophy of we win by not destroying what we hate, but by saving what we love. Um, and so the, there's a recognition in that character of the fact that things are not always going to go the way you want and not every institution is in it for your best interests. And sometimes the hero, the bad guys have a point, but the absolute best we can do is double down on what we think is right um, rather than giving in to the temptation of what leads us to the dark side. So the Supreme Court is about to become a supermajority of vindictive, minority-hating, um, you know, women rights-limiting, gay rights-limiting conservatives. What are we going to do? Are we going to become Evelyn's and just try to brainwash everyone to think like us? We're going to be Elastigirls and go out there and fight for what we believe in. And I think the one thing Incredibles 2 taught me, it's better to be the Elastigirl. And until next time, be kind to infinity and beyond. <laughs>